Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Ampersand and Sons. I'm Neil Bailey, and this is my friend Julian Finn. Hello, Neil. Hey, I don't know why I always do that like I'm trying to sell you a used car, but uh, anyone wants to buy one, I got this wonderful 1997 Honda Acura for approximately $4,300 Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Right, it's great, only a little sawdust. I I always tell people, don't buy used cars from a used car lot, buy them from either a friend or buy them from a car rental place. Yes, this falls true to my experience. I have had some terrible, terrible used car stories. I got one that was actually, uh, they faked the car fax, and it was totaled on me. Uh, so, you know, that was exciting. Drive and speaking of, miles. speaking of used cars, let's talk about Zack Snyder's Justice League. Now, there's oh, absolutely no yeah, link. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> there, there's that's, no that link was between the, those. I served that one right up to you. Yeah, yeah, there's no real <laughs> link between those two things, other than the fact that I kind of feel as a... Um, a fan, even a disgruntled one of the Zack Snyder Superman movies, the Snyderverse, um, I, I I thoroughly enjoy just about anything that gets chucked at me in this particular genre of movie, so I can still call myself a fan of them. Uh, I do feel like the pitch to fans about this movie was vaguely car salesman-esque. Yeah, well, at least at very least, it was it was Zack Snyder's Honda Acura. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? no, absolutely. It's the original vision of what a Honda Acura should look. Well, no, Honda and Acura are different brands of cars. That analogy falls apart. Um, <laughs> this is I know that. Um, uh, it's just this whole thing is an exercise in someone making themselves more important than the character in question. And that's probably really great if you like that person. Um, But otherwise it just kind of leaves you cold. So, all right, let's, so what we're going to do just so the listeners know is we're going to break this up because this is a big operatic four hour experience. We're going to break this up into probably four podcasts or six chapters. We'll figure it out as we go along where the natural (laughs) breaks are. Um, But I'm going to push back a little bit, and we should probably give people that don't know, although I think at this point everybody does know the context behind all of this, um, and why I think slapping Zack Snyder's name on it makes a certain amount of sense, because this is really the first time something like this... Well, no. It's the second time something like this has happened. Just nobody watched it the first time. So the first time (laughs) I can recall anything like this happening was a few years back. And I think it was at least 10. It could have been longer. There was a movie that came out that was a prequel to The Exorcist called Exorcist The Beginning. And (laughs) it was an okay movie, right? Like the script was decent. They found a director who liked the material. Um, the The writer was passionate about the material. It had all of the recipe for success. But the movie that they made was a dud. And then they did something that nobody else had ever done before. They took the same script and handed it to a different writer-director team and said, make a different movie out of this. Yeah, they also did things like, uh, I believe, gosh, I seem to recall Laserdiscs in the early 90s that were the director's cut of something. Sure, um, but director's cuts have always... Apocalypse Now or... 
director's cuts have always existed, but this is this is something different than the director's cut, and so is actually. Oh, you're talking about a complete revisioning where it's been handed off to another director. Oh, yeah. that that I could say has been going on forever. That's been since like the '50s. They just didn't publicize it. They would they take a movie and be half done, and they'd be like, "You're out of here." Yeah, you know, and, and, we, and it was we publicized. I think was Exorcist. Right, and we we also got the Richard Donner cut of Superman Two versus the you know famous sort of split with what happened there where Donner got fired from the production by the Salkin brothers and they brought in Richard Lester and Richard Lester wanted the director's credit and uh, basically reshot the movie. And then in 2005, we got to see the original restored vision kind of. Um, yeah. There's a whole and, story in there hidden that I have to tell you about outside of the podcast, but there is a, a backstory that's kind of a super secret story, and I can, I suppose, tantalize the audience with that. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot to the Donner cut that wasn't talked about. So I would love to hear that, because I'm a huge fan of those movies. Yeah. Richard Lester's version, Richard Donner's version. Um, and, you know, maybe what we got with the Snyder cut is a net more analogous to what we got with the Donner cut in that it purports to be the original director's vision for a movie that cannot possibly actually be the original director's vision for the movie because it incorporates so much that is <laughs> extraneous to the original movie. In the case of the Donner cut, he was forced to use some of Richard Lester's footage to make the movie make sense and be watchable. In the case of the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, he got to use two or three years of internet commentary and react to that while making changes. So in neither case, we really get the original vision of what the director had intended, um, but we do get two very different products. And I feel that since the original theatrical cut of Justice League does still exist, we live in a world where you can rent both versions of this thing, making the distinction Zack Snyder's Justice League makes a certain amount of sense, even if it's done in kind of an egotistical way. Well, this is also notably, unlike the Donner cut, unlike the final apocalypse cut, this is the first time where it is an example of a studio caving to a very toxic, kind of uh, violently angry group of people instead of having it be a, a kind of a supplement to an existing piece that may be a cash grab, but is also still, you know, not as acrimonious. I know people will fight me with knives over the Star Wars Special Editions, but no one was like, we need the original Star Wars vision and willing to, you know, dox people over it the way that Snyder people have been about the uh, the Justice League vision. It's the yeah. first time where it's kind of been like a situation where a, where a very organized, very public bullying campaign has succeeded. Um, no, and and that's, that's part of the context that we have to address, I think. There, there's that. There's the, there's the context of the fact that, and I will freely admit that up until Ray Fisher, who plays Cyborg in these movies, um, made his allegations about what was going on on the set of Justice League Public, I was an unabashed Joss Whedon fanboy. I loved Firefly. I loved Buffy. I loved Angel. God help me. I loved Dollhouse for what it was. Um, 
like I, I bought the comics. I still maintain that the best thing to come out of Whedon's brain was a standalone graphic novel called Frey that dealt with the, uh, the Buffy verse, like 200 and something years in the future. Um, I like, I was a Joss Whedon fan and I was not a Zack Snyder fan, at least insofar as his handling of these particular characters. So just to give some context for how I approach this material, I loved Dawn of the Dead. Loved Dawn of the Dead. There's a moment in Dawn of the Dead where they're in the mall. This is a spoiler for a very old movie, so I'm not going to apologize for it. But they're in a very... They're in the mall and things are not going well in the mall and they get in an elevator and the elevator music is don't worry, be happy. And little touches like that from Zack Snyder's earlier stuff made me grin. I enjoyed it. I I loved the visuals of 300. No one had really done that before. Um, I, I even loved Sucker Punch, even though it's got some misogynistic issues buried into not just the subtext <laughs> but the text a few yeah just a couple <laughs> like i loved watchmen for what it was which was a slavish devotion to a comic book that is written by a man who notably hates superheroes um and is a dis deconstruction of that genre and Zack snyder produced i think as faithful an adaptation of that book, although not the intent and feel of the universe as we then got to see with the HBO special last year, but of that book as any director could have possibly done. Um, so his success doing that though, to me made him unqualified to handle these characters. Yeah, I think um, it was a mistake ever letting Snyder have any heroes that were meant to be lauded. Um, I, with the exception, perhaps, of Leonidas, or Leonidas, I'm butchering it, Leonidas, because um, he is he is right in that Snyder wheelhouse. But going down the line of those, those movies you mentioned, um, I watched Dawn of the Dead when I was, I think, 23, and because I was a 23-year-old dude, I think that's why I liked it. It was right in my wheelhouse as being a young adult man who hadn't really thought everything out all the way or grown much as a person. Um, but I haven't rewatched it, so that's also an unfair critique. I think that um, the, the 300 movie I watched again recently, probably a year or two ago, and visually it still stands up. But it still has that kind of adolescent, young, snarling male, only concerned with sex and killing people kind of thing um, that has an appeal at a certain age but gets tiresome. Um, I'm not saying it's invalid as, as, as a mode of entertainment because it's not. I mean, it's, it's just a preference, but it's not, it's not for me anymore. But I can still watch 300 and enjoy the visuals. I think the visuals are still dynamic. But, and this is where we start to run into the biggest problems with Zack Snyder, it's because he stole all of Frank Miller's framing. And right. the places where that movie is the most compelling is where he just basically shot for shot steals from Frank Miller. And the same problem is I have with Watchmen um, having, I, I really enjoyed it when it first came out because again, mid twenties male. 
Um, but now in the fullness of time, having seen it several times, I see all of the cheap tricks that were pulled and I kind of get resentful. It feels like I've been sold a used car to go back to the metaphor. Yeah. And I also see that it is essentially shot for shot, just taking Gibbons and Moore's work and being like, hey, I'm the genius that made this. And it's the same thing he's done with Superman and the Justice League and all of those wonderful characters or even arguably Romero. You know, right. he's like, this is the thing that I have envisioned and made perfect. And in reality, you just kind of scratch at that a little bit and you don't even have three cherries. You don't even win your dollar back on your scratcher. You're kind of like looking at this thing and you're like, what is this? This is, you know, this sure, is it's, a cheap it's, trick. it's variations on somebody else's theme. It's Microsoft inventing the iPad when they released the first Surface Pro. And I, I, well, I <laughs> so. Even the the Legends of the Gardens of the Gallows of Gahul, which I still haven't seen, but I just love saying the name of. Uh, has he done an original thing in his life? Uh, Sucker, Punch. Sucker Punch. Yeah. Is that not an adaptation? No. Nope. And look at what it goes to immediately. I mean, we without going into it, because I don't want to have the arguments with anybody, but, I mean, it's very obviously a piece of almost naked misogyny. And it's... Also, it has, and, it and has that's some from issues. Me. That's that's from me, who is very, very, very loath to cry misogyny. I tend to err on the side of good intention on the part of the audience, or on the part of the uh, creator, right? Um, despite the audience's reaction. But I mean, there is so much that is simple appropriation without attribution that makes up the legend of Zack Snyder that it's in, unfair to go into. Um, something like Justice League especially, and go like, Joss Whedon stole his vision. It's like, right. so, yeah, yeah. So let's, come So on. let's talk about that, right? So, And I brought up yeah. the fact that I have enjoyed Zack's previous work and was an unabashed Joss Whedon fan <clears throat> to basically say when the theatrical cut of Justice League came out, it was fine. Right, like to quote yeah. to quote the president. I still prefer of, it. To oh, okay, well that'll be interesting. Um, to quote the president, not because it's better. I hate both movies. Yeah. It's just one ends in two and a half hours. <laughs> to 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 quote the uh, the president of uh, an LGBT student association when asked about Kevin Smith's chasing Amy a long, long time ago, it was dumb but mostly harmless. Um, it was ineffective. It tried. Yeah, it was. That's that's the thing about chasing Amy. It tried in good faith, and anyone can see that intention does matter. Right, and the theatrical cut of Justice League, I would say, was dumb but mostly harmless. There was some stupid stuff in there. Um, there was some bad characterization, but of the three. Zack Snyder influenced projects that had come out by that point, man, or directly touched by Zack Snyder projects that had come out at that point. Uh, man of Steel, Batman v Superman, and Justice League. Justice League was far and away the least offensive to my palate as a viewer of those three. Yeah, we, it wasn't Whedon's Justice League, number one. And number two, at least, the Justice League that came out in theaters attempted even if it failed uh, uh, fairly mightily, to inject a little bit of optimism or brightness into this dour, pessimistic, laced with realism that's so far you can see right through it kind of universe, you know? 
Right. And so, I mean, it wasn't great. There were some great elements to it. I now, having watched the Snyder Cut, recognize that most of the things that I enjoyed about it actually came from Snyder's footage because my understanding is for the Zack Snyder cut, he didn't use anything that was new material or newly added by Whedon and his writing team. Um, there were things I liked about it, but overall it was just kind of, all right, that's a thing that exists now. I'm going to wait for the next one and hope it's better. <laughs> Yeah, oh, are you speaking specifically of the Snyder Cut? No, I'm here. Here, I'm talking about the theatrical release we got right, of right, right. Justice League, right? And like to give that little bit of context, you know, Zack Snyder's working on this movie. We now know that what he had originally produced was way too long for the studio's taste. Um, whether the studio was right or not. I don't know anymore. At the time, I would have agreed with them. But then Avengers Endgame came out and it was three and a half hours long and it was a theatrical release and everybody loved it. Um, so maybe there was something to Snyder's argument. Hey, let me put a four hour movie in theaters. This is the way it should be. Um, but the well, student- he, he has to make that argument first. That's the problem. Yeah. He, he, the story that he has presented does not make that argument. Uh, Fair. But we'll get into that. We'll get into that. But, but so he has this personal tragedy in his life and he has to leave the project. And at the time that he leaves, the project is in flux because he's fighting with the studio over length and what should be cut. And so they bring Joss Whedon in, who was still sort of flying high off of that sweet, sweet Avengers gig um, to try and work some magic here. And what we got from Whedon was a two hour, two and a half hour version of like it, it was it was a executive producer cut movie. Yes. Right. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense because the amount of material you had to cut out to get it down to that was always going to produce a movie that didn't make a whole lot of sense. But it was fine. I actually I should should watch it again. You should. I disagree with you because I did watch it again before watching the Snyder Cut. So I watched seven-ish hours of Justice League that week. Um, (laughs) And while neither of them is a good movie, the Snyder Cut, in my opinion, is the better movie. You know, I think, reflecting on it, and I'll be honest, I half-watched the Whedon Justice League while I was doing something else just so that I would be able to respond to people like, what do you think about this, Neil? And it didn't change my opinion of what I would probably think about it very much. Um, but when I did watch it, um, I, I, it, I was just like, this is, this is still too long uh, for the story that's present here. And a big critique I have of movies lately is, is you know, like I, 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 I feign like I'm going to get up and then I say, just, uh, just call me when the movie starts. And, um, that's it, you know it's it's very mammoth of me but it's it's absolutely true it's like these these the, they spend so much time fetishizing and building up these situations that they don't start telling a story and if it, to bring to draw your comparison back um avengers endgame as an example it's a to b to c to d and there are just so many moving parts that it's necessitated 
in Justice League, this thing happens, then this thing happens, then this thing happens, then this thing happens, and they are all, every one of them, that take two hours to kind of coalesce in the Snyder version and about an hour, maybe an hour and 15 in the Whedon version, as I recall, they all coalesce around a false premise that Batman just suddenly knows something bad is going to happen and all of these people are getting together. So back to context. Yeah, yeah. I'm bringing this up before we go into the main thing is that it neither movie has a reason to be two and a half hours long. This entire plot could be executed in about an hour and a half. And that, as much as I am loath to agree with studio executives, that is the fundamental flaw with every version of this film, is that it is not an epic. It is not a story over time. It is not a culmination or a building of character resulting in some epic climax. It is essentially every superhero movie that we've seen that has been yeah. kind of subpar, substandard for the law. It's like, a villain has appeared, we must defeat them. The villain appears in the middle of the end of the movie, he's defeated, and then it goes away, but you don't really care about the journey of any of the heroes because there is nothing in those journeys related to the villain at all. Right, and the, and the, the crime that this movie commits, if it commits any, is that it... So I'm going to wind up a lot over the course of this breakdown comparing it to Endgame um, because they're both big, bombastic, operatic movies that are silly and in places fun and don't make a lot of sense and have a lot of problems in their writing and consistency, yeah. right? But It might be fair, if, if I can briefly interrupt, I would say it might be fair to compare it to Infinity War because this is the same structure design. It's the first part of a larger story with a big villain. Um, but I see what you're saying because if you have to compare it to a deeply flawed ensemble four-hour superhero film, Endgame is much more flawed than Infinity War. So it's kind of, you know, I'm, I'll probably push back and forth with you on that as, yeah. as to which is the more apt comparison. I, I, I think they're both successes in a couple of ways and their failures in a couple of ways but the crime that that Zack Snyder's Justice League is made is it wants to have the same pomp and weight that Endgame has and it belongs to a franchise that simply hasn't earned that and so things yes. that made little kids stand up and cheer in Endgame land like thuds in this movie and it's not because endgame is inherently a better movie it's that endgame is the product of 19 previous movies building up to those moments and years of fan speculation and it earns those moments and those things whereas in this movie and we'll go deep but in this movie the things that are meant to land the same way don't because they all just come off as look at this cool thing that we chucked in here because the internet told us to for two years. And you know what it is. And it's it's weird because you get a thing like what's going on now with Falcon and Winter Soldier. And you have a situation where a tertiary kind of laughing stock of a character, U.S. agent, how has how no has more relation and weight to the Falcon now than any of the heroes in Justice League have to Darkseid, Desaad, Steppenwolf, or, heck, even um, 
Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's this connective tissue and weight that can only exist because you have paid that price in story over time. And we don't get that here. Yes. And, and what it is, is there's this mentality with fans and it was present with Smallville um, where essentially just because something is labeled toy man, they are happy that it's the toy man. And that is a very young impulse, and I can't even really fault people for it, but if you're going to analyze a thing and make an argument that it's the greatest thing ever ever outside of just, I enjoyed this because I enjoyed it, which is also perfectly legit, yeah, right? But if you're going to be like, this is, like most, uh, like I've seen a lot of Snyder people do and go, this is high cinema, and if you do not see it, you are a Philistine. It's very similar to the way people grant uh, act with Grant Morrison. And, and as much as I enjoy Grant Morrison and like some of his work, um, it's it, with Grant Morrison, at least there's some things that you can point to and be like, see that? That's very creative. Yeah. You see that? That's very innovative. That's a thing that you don't see. Like the pa- I just read We Three. And, and oh, the so panel good. design, yeah. which is arguably quietly. Yeah, you know, like I'm developing a newfound respect for this artist that I haven't particularly agreed with many storytelling approaches with because I, at least I can analytically say there's the work, Yeah, you know? Um, and other than cinematography, which as I pointed out is kind of aping a lot of other creators, um, I haven't seen much weight to anything Snyder has done. No, that's fair. Um, The last thing I want to say in this intro, because you brought up Smallville in the context of all of this, is when I was watching this the first time, the character that felt missing for me the most from this ensemble cast that would have blended in seamlessly and whose every utterance on TV I enjoyed but was completely unearned in the exact same way because it was relying on your knowledge of that character and who he was from the comics and the cartoons was the JSA Hawkman that was introduced on Smallville. <laughs> you know, it, or even the Smallville version of Dark Side. You know, it's like just because it's it's there doesn't mean that, you know, it's what you what you have come to know that thing is. And that's that's one of the things we'll get into it. But there's you know, you want to talk about if if you're going to lean on the existing canon, if you're going to make a movie where everybody's expectations are what fuel your enjoyment, then you don't make a Steppenwolf that looks like a Catman. You make a Steppenwolf that looks like Steppenwolf. Yeah. It's like he chooses where it's convenient to rely on things and where he's got his weird ideas, like with Doomsday or whatever. Then he just gives in completely to his weird impulses. And when he when he gives in to those weird impulses, it tends to fall the flattest when he's not relying on someone else's visual language. So, so yeah. I so I will say, before we get into the meat of this thing, that... Of the material, the, the the DC Comics material that Zack Snyder has produced, so Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, and I would I would argue both versions of Justice League represent his work. So I'll say both versions. Um, this Justice League movie is the one that I am most likely to revisit out of those four films. It is, for all of its faults, a better constructed movie than Batman v Superman, um, to my eye. 
and had more stuff that I would like to see again than any of those movies. I think Bat. I think Man of Steel is the one that I would revisit out of the, out of the, uh, out of these because, well, frankly, it apes a thing that I very much regard well, which is Birthright. Yeah, and um, arguably, you know, we've talked about how how the beginning of Man of Steel is your favorite part. Yes, I think that that's that's another example of of, of appropriation um, because it's it swipes a lot from Wade. Um, you know, some of the things that are, that are, and, and it's weirdly mixed in with things that are just not right for the character, just not good. But the take on Krypton is probably the coolest interpretation yeah, of that I've neat. ever seen. Like that, that beginning pastiche are, are needless, but I guess we have to do it in every origin movie flashbacks to, you know, a younger version of the character learning they have powers, et cetera, et cetera, just in case you don't know that Clark Kent is Superman and goes to work for the Daily Planet. Like, it's handled well. Yeah, and and it's arguable whether it has to be done, but if you're going to do it, choose the birthright one, I would say. Yeah. Um, you know, like, uh, I, I used to be pretty hard on birthright back when they were like, it must be reconciled with the existing continuity and that it will fit perfectly, and that led to me misjudging it critically, and now I've read it many, many times in the ensuing years, and it's it's hands down one of the best Superman stories. I prefer it to... The all time some things that people are like it's the all time greats. I think it's better than All Star Superman, and I know Oof. people will knife fight me on that too. I might knife I fight you for that. I love too. Birthright, but I might knife fight you for that. I love both. Yeah, I like both. I love both, but I think Birthright is the superior Superman story because um, there's too much nod in All Star Superman, and you need too much of what came before for All Star Superman to make sense in the Snyder sense. But Birthright, it's its its, its own self-contained story that has everything you need. All right. So on that note, we're going to break this into chapters. I have decided that chapter one of this podcast will be called In Which Batman Inexplicably Assembles a Bunch of People Together to Punch Something. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> you could also call it Wonder Woman Makes a Man's Head Splat on a Wall, and even though Neil is 41, his inner child recoils. But that's a bit long. Yeah, that is a little bit longer. I, I, I like mine better. Um, <laughs> and it should be noted for those who are listening who are Snyder fans who loved this thing to death. Um, I don't know about Neil, but I didn't hate this thing there like i said there are elements of it that i enjoyed i will rewatch it though not all in one go ever again because that was too much and i'm too old to go that long without a bathroom bathroom break um <laughs> but uh no we're we're talking about this because a it's important it's it's reflective of something new and different that's happening in superhero cinema for good or for ill so it bears talking about but also because there's fun to be had in discussing it there was some cool stuff in here that i wish had belonged to a better movie but that nonetheless we got to see and i'm excited for that so the question do you hate it is an important one yeah yeah <laughs> and i just thought about it there for a minute um, I obviously don't love it, but I don't think I hate it. You know, there's this old, old, old Charles Bukowski quote, right? 
where someone is asking him what he thinks of uh, particular writers, and, and it goes really, really well. And there's a little arrogance in it, but he goes, what do you think of Norman Mailer? And Charles Bukowski takes a pause, and he goes, I don't think of Norman Mailer. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of it. I don't think of Justice League enough to hate it. I have opinions on the competency of its execution, but it's not like I'm ever going to go on Twitter and try and convince someone that it's bad. I just kind of know that it's harmful to the character, but I actually don't care because the damage has long been done. Um, now, I also think that it's so cyclical that it will come back, so I don't worry about it. And I would advise y'all don't worry about it, too. If you think that I'm a nasty, bad person because I don't like this thing that you like, I would question whether you're being too passionate about something. Uh, it, it, this is not this is not a political um, bill that if it passes or fails will mean people starve or mean people are are um, treated with bigotry. This is a film, um, so I don't hate it. I just don't think of it. I suppose. But I am going to think of it at length with you now, and there's a reason for that, too. The reason is that it is worthy exercise to deconstruct and analyze almost anything um, and how it, is, how it is presented. And one of the things that I can deconstruct and analyze well, and you as well, is Superman-related material. And I think that there are a lot of people who are thinking about this who have impressions but haven't been able to articulate them. And that's one of the things that we can do is help speak for them or help them learn and articulate their opinions in a way that they can express cogently, which is all the point of analysis and five years of college and it'll never make you a dime, but it's fun. <laughs> okay, so before we dive in, I've got one question for you. Limit your answer to yeah. two sentences if possible. Oh my God! Black Adam, The Rock himself, <laughs> may be poised to actually restore the Snyderverse. How do you feel about that? I'm fine. I'll watch it. Yeah. I'll give it a chance. Yeah. Okay. That's three sentences. Oh, no, it's three sentences. It's okay. They were they were three Hemingway-esque, very punchy short sentences. So we'll, we'll forgive it. <laughs> I... Yeah, I like I like the Rock, and I also liked the Shazam movie, even though I you know I don't remember too much of it. I remember enjoying it, and being like that's worth one watch. So I'd love to see more. I would have loved to see that character in this movie. Yeah, I think so. I think it would have been far better than Deathstroke. And Deathstroke. and thanks to the uh, stinger at the end of Shazam, uh, we know that he could have been in this movie. Because Justice League clearly takes place after Shazam because Superman is wearing the blue suit in the stinger at the end of Shazam. And that <laughs> didn't survive the fashion show in Zack Snyder's Justice League. Oh, but didn't they say it was like an Elseworlds or anything anyway? You know what they should have done? They just had a joker there. We live in a society, Batman. Crunch, Black Adam. I would have stood up. And <laughs> All right. Chapter one, in which Batman inexplicably assembles a whole bunch of people to get together and punch a thing for no discernible reason. Cut. And here we go. <laughs> okay, so there's six chapters to this movie, and one of the things we'll talk about is whether that makes any sense at all as far as breaking it up for <laughs> easy viewing, 
and all that jazz because they don't feel like chapters and they don't feel like natural chapter breaks <laughs> and I don't know what the heck was going on there. But I, he's he's such a visionary, Julian, that he has six extra. Well, I mean, I okay, so I appreciate what he was trying to accomplish, right? So he's recognizing that this is a thing that we're going to watch in our living rooms and never in a movie theater. And so people are going to get up and need pee breaks and to go and get popcorn. And he wants us desperately to see every second of slow-mo raindrops. Um, so he, he doesn't <laughs> I think he was just trying to be Quentin Tarantino. It's possible, but I think it was more the recognition that this is a four-hour piece of work. And the only way you're going to get people to sit through it in one go is if you give them a place where they can get up and, like, you know, yell at their kids and go to the bathroom and... <laughs> <laughs> or go, God, how am I going to get through this? I really have to get through this for this podcast. Maybe yeah. that's just me. Hey, it might be just you. The the <laughs> fan reaction to it and more perplexing to me because the I, I tend to be pretty middle of the road uh, when it comes to critic reviews. Um, Rotten Tomatoes is a really good barometer for me if the general pool of critics over about 75 percent likes a thing i'll generally find it inoffensive if they're split 50 50 i'll love it and if it's anything under about 40 percent i know it's going to be a dumpster fire and the thing that was perplexing to me was the critical consensus of this was this is good i think that well so, so i've got this weird curve where like when the reviewers get snooty or like political, I will tend to drop off. But for most, for the most part, I tend to agree with like they have that that scale where it's like Rotten Tomatoes audience loved it, critics hate it, uh -huh. or critics love it, audience hate it. I tend to be on the critics critics love it, audience hate it side of scale scale of things. But um, in this case, I think that um, the critics are loving it or at least liking it because they were presented with such a a bad initial movie and they're like well you know this isn't the the d that it was before so you know they kind of overcorrect they're like well since it's been made better we've got to acknowledge that somehow and it comes off as a positive review yeah no and that's possible um yeah the, the only time i find myself out of whack with the critic consensus is like i said when they're torn 50 50 i almost universally love a thing um, and when there's obviously a political axe to grind, and the two examples of that that come to mind are The Amazing Spider-Man, the first one with Andrew Garfield, second one's an yeah. absolute homage to Pooh, um, <clears throat> but the first one I felt was a better Spider-Man movie than the first and third Tobey Maguire movies, um, and I couldn't figure out why it was getting so heavily slammed. And it was because of all the politics surrounding Sam Raimi. And the same thing is happening with The Nevers right now on HBO, which is a solid piece of genre that everybody is acting their hearts out in that uh, plays in that superhero magic superpowers uh, pool that I love to swim in, but because it was created by Joss Whedon, who has now left the show, the general critic consensus is kill it with fire. It's weird the way that works because you'd think that with Snyder's Superman, you would you would see a little bit more of uh, or Snyder's Justice League rather, you would see more of a, a a link between Snyder and his rabid pseudo alt right fan base that's that's fighting for his work like like no tomorrow. 
Yeah, yeah, but no, it's it's it was an interesting reaction, and it made me think, well, maybe I'm wrong. And then I rewatched it, and I went, no, I'm definitely right. It's the critics who are out of touch. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's a six chapter behemoth, and we're gonna try to break this podcast into six chapters and release it over a couple of weeks. Um, I think maybe we should start with general overviews for chapter one, like where it stacks up against the original, what we liked, what we didn't, and then we'll deep dive into plot and stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I did a lot of thinking in terms of the broader scale. Um, so I and and to be quite frank, the chapter breaks didn't take for me um, because I didn't really see much of a difference between that. Like I just used them as, as an excuse for a pee break like you were describing. Yeah. Um, or like as a pause to go, oh, God, I must continue. Um, but if you want to, you know, like if you want to tell me where the end of the chapter break is, I should have a frame of reference or we can start just talking in broad strokes up to you yeah let's start the first chunk let's let's just talk broad strokes well guys there's going to be spoilers as we discuss broad strokes but we're going to go back and do like a systematic breakdown of the chapters moving out okay. of this introductory piece um do you do you mind if i start because i got some things to say yeah that yeah go nuts contextual so this is a four-hour movie that is supposed to represent the original vision of Zack snyder for what this movie was meant to be and we discussed all of the politics around that and what happened and how it's basically impossible to reclaim the original vision in the wake of two years of internet comments dictating what the final product was but it did not need to be a four-hour movie you could have cut out 45 minutes of slow-mo and had a perfectly contained better movie than the first one. I think I think the the thing that ruined my enjoyment of what is to me an objectively better film than the theatrical release and I liked the theatrical release for what it was, like it wasn't great, but it wasn't it didn't make me mad the way Batman v Superman did. Um was the fact that I had to endure shots that were just way too long because the director of this film is up his own butt with his love of making everything slow and dramatic and operatic right and the perfect example of that is at the beginning of the movie we get a recap of the end of batman v superman in which superman is being murdered by doomsday even though there's no good reason for that to happen because Wonder Woman's as strong as Superman could have picked up that spear and killed him herself and nobody would have had to die. Um, but we get that recap so we can see how the mother boxes were woken up, which was Superman's death scream, which had it been a 30 second sequence would have been an excellent plot mechanism to explain why this is just suddenly happening but it was five minutes of this, and I'm probably exaggerating, but five minutes of this screams effect as it wafts around the earth and wakes up these boxes and everything else that was apparently sleeping at that point. And the longevity of the scene ruins the plot improvement for me. And this movie is riddled Doesn't with that. Doesn't it undercut something? Like, maybe I just didn't understand the way that the plot was constructed, but my understanding was that at the end of Batman v Superman and the beginning of Justice League, the Snyder Cut, I can't remember with Whedon, isn't Lex Luthor um, contacting Steppenwolf? Like, isn't that supposed to be the catalyst? Isn't that an entirely redundant scene? 
Well, I don't know if he's contacting Steppenwolf or if the ship is just warning him about Steppenwolf. Because the Steppenwolf that is in front of Luthor just or just looks like one of those uh, constructs that Kryptonian tech yes. makes. So maybe it's and just mud. the end of Batman v... Yeah, and the end of Batman v Superman, Luthor appears to be trying to warn people that something worse is coming, not being gleeful about having summoned yeah, it. Yeah, it's so muddled for me, but yeah, I guess that makes sense. Which is in character for Luthor, because his beef is never with humanity. His beef is with the fact that he's not the one that humanity looks to as their savior. Yeah, that makes a little bit more sense. It's weird that he would, that he would then... Um... I don't know. It, 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 Luthor in general. We'll get to it. But you were you were you were saying that, I don't want to interrupt. Yeah, that that scene in Batman v Superman where you see Steppenwolf makes no sense until Justice League comes out. Like I, it was one of the most disconcerting, weird well moments it, in it, that movie. It makes sense because it's entirely it's not there for the plot. It's not there for the character. It's there to make everybody go, "Ooh, wow, Steppenwolf! I know that. That's what it's for." I suppose, but that's a deep cut for your average movie-going <laughs> fan to know. You but, know what I mean? That, right, that's... but it's not, It's not though, if you're using the Snyder method. So so it's not a deep cut for the average, for the, for the average, uh, well, it is a deep cut for the average fan, but if you're Zack Snyder and then you get to go on Twitter and you get to go, guess what, bros? That was Steppenwolf! Then everybody's, yeah, all right, dudes! You know, and, and, it, and it builds up, the, he's using the, 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 for lack of a better way of putting it, the Trump method of using Twitter to gin up support, like creating this rabid I, fanatic group no, no, of people. No, no, I, I don't disagree. My point is, is Stephen Wolf is such a weirdly obscure character for people that are the general movie-going audience that it would be akin to chucking Cain and Abel in the House of Mystery from Sandman into a Batman movie as a stick. Yeah, but see, the thing is, it doesn't matter what it is necessarily, so much as it's something for people to lack on, latch onto and cite authenticity that doesn't exactly yeah. exist. But yeah, so we get, we get this scene where Superman is dying and he screams, and his scream is what wakes the mother boxes up and alerts Steppenwolf to their existence. And that is a fantastic, I mean, okay, fantastic is strong. That is a better framing mechanism than this is a thing that just coincidentally happened 30 seconds after Superman died because. Like, it gives a reason for this attack to take place. And it feeds the backstory that they then give us as to why the mother boxes are on Earth. And, like, all of that context that was missing from the theatrical release is captured in that tiny, tiny change to the end of Batman v Superman in this conceit at the beginning of Snyder's Justice League. And it's apt, it's impact and enjoyment and aha, that's actually smart is totally flattened for me by the need to turn it into a five minute slow-mo like rabbits are waking up in the field scene. It would, it, it, to me, it's it's more undercut by the lack of the A to B to C of the plot because if they wants to take five minutes indulgently looking at a at a thing, I have no problem with the scene like that. One of the best scenes for me in Unbreakable is that opening scene where he spends five minutes with a kid just playing peekaboo with 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 Bruce Willis. You know, you can take your time yeah. with the thing and it makes absolute sense as long as it's feeding the plot. But the thing is, like, it's starting from a place of incoherence. You have a mother box, which is not as the film depicts it traditionally. Um, 
it taking the place just nakedly, blatantly for Infinity Stones. Um, where where they're already on Earth with no real reason why. Darkseid seems to already know that they're there. Darkseid is not coming there and appears later surprised that they are there. Um, Anti-life equation. No, but we get... A, we, well, go ahead. We get an explanation for that. It's just dumb. Well, yeah, right? sure. Because if, if you're a space-faring civilization who's job is conquering worlds for your divine boss like if that's the if that's the the company you work for you don't lose the planet where you lost your MacGuffins. well yeah, you don't just forget where it that's, was yeah that's that's what i'm pointing out yeah that that it's it's like suddenly they've they're like we know where the mother box is now it's like you never didn't know and i think you know it's either that they didn't think the plot out when they initially made it if this was the initial plot or they're expecting us just to forgive it because it's so infinity stone like um in the rejigger for the snyder cut but anybody who's actually thinking about it for more than 10 seconds sees that it makes no coherent sense yeah but yeah, so the, the slow-mo killed me, and it killed me because it added, like, 45 minutes of movie that didn't need to be there. Yeah. Um, the the Batman dream sequence stuff, I don't even know what the point of any of that is. I didn't get it in Batman v Superman. <clears throat> I didn't get it here. I can tell you. It, I ripped. I really didn't get it in the theatrical release. Oh, no, I understand <laughs> what they're leaning into. It just doesn't make any sense for these characters. Correct. Right? Yes. And there's a lot of that. It doesn't make any sense for these characters stuff in here that ruins the good. Ray Fisher as Cyborg gets the bulk of the correction to the theatrical release as far as how his character is handled. And I still hate this version of the character because Cyborg is not a moody douchebag. I get that a person in that situation might be, but that doesn't make for a fun movie. Well, Fisher and all of the actors do a fine and passable job, even Momoa, who I'm not incredibly a fan of. They all do a great job acting. The problem is everything surrounding them, especially Fisher, because there's a lot of opportunity there that was squandered. Um, and I think that each character, one by one, has no real arc to speak of. I've been, uh, and, and like I was saying, even Fisher's arc, Fisher's arc is, is there, but it's a terrible choice of an arc, um, for that character in this context. And everything else is yeah. like, like, I, 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 I did a little list, like, like, what does Aquaman learn? Uh, that he has to pick up his trident? Not really. What does Wonder Woman learn? Um, nothing. She's there as an artificial prop, and she gets one scene where she gets to be a badass, which is essentially what Snyder's approach is toward her in both scenes. It's like she he knows that everyone will 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 stand up and cheer in the audience who loves Wonder Woman when you when you hear that. You know, like that's all it is. It's like you get these people who are like, yeah. I know that. And other than that, like, wh what do you get? The, the, what is the message from Wonder Woman? She smacks somebody into a wall and creates head paste with them. Uh, Batman, like, what does he learn? He learns that he's got to be even more paranoid because even getting everybody together is going to make everything terrible. Uh, Flash is, yeah, and you it, know. 
Yeah, and again, you're stuck with this comparison between the non-Zack Snyder movies for these characters that are out there and how they've characterized these people um, again. Like, it was jarring when Justice League, the theatrical cut, came out to see the depiction of Wonder Woman in that movie versus Wonder Woman in her own movie. Uh, I don't think Aquaman had come out yet, but Momoa's... portrayal of Aquaman in his own movie and the way that that character is written in his own movie is wildly different. Um, And so going back and seeing this take on those characters again after those have happened and after we've gotten a Wonder Woman sequel that plays with our collective knowledge of how Wonder Woman and Max Lord interacted in the comics last. Um, (laughs) Like that that tension like they're not the same characters just just divorce it entirely like superman and lois it like treat this as its own universe right now and if you do that you know like if you say it's perfectly valid to have any take on wonder woman any take on superman do any of these characters have an arc um i would argue that flash gets one in this movie and actually what they did with flash makes me more excited to see his standalone movie. Like, I'm actually kind of pumped for that. That said, and I'm going to say something that puts me at odds with uh, with much of the movie fandom, there's nothing Ezra Miller did in these movies that Grant Gustin doesn't do better on the TV show. <laughs> well, so, so the Flash's arc, I see what you're saying, because, like, he has a job in the end, right? He is he is yes. a police forensic... So, so but that is, like... Um, Oh, is that what you would consider the arc? No, I would consider the arc his growth as a person that we actually get to like as a hero that we actually get to see because he's got more than seven minutes of screen time this time. Around. So, so his right, we get we get to see we get to see his use of powers outside of the context of heroism in that scene where he met where he meets Iris um, and where he's applying for the job in the dog grooming place. We get to see his enthusiasm for being a super friend but his terror at screwing it up and his reluctance to do anything that'll result in the mistake turn into something resembling a confidence that yeah okay i can do this okay and that happened in the theatrical release like those changes occurred in the theatrical release but they were jarring because he had like seven or eight minutes of screen time and it had to be carried by dialogue from batman so i can see what you're saying now that i now that i'm parsing it out and thinking it what does he want he wants to be a competent hero why can't he have it because he hasn't got a team to augment him and teach him how to do it and then uh how's he going to get it he's going to join the justice league i suppose yeah. um i just don't see you know like like he kind of comes to that simply through the actions that he takes by fighting dark side but there doesn't seem to be any any growth path to it there's no there's no conflict for him to it other than go fast like he never fails with his powers he never uh he doesn't see nobody that... does he does in the fight in the fight with superman and because there's more flash oh, in this okay. movie yeah. right because there's more flash in this movie that failure and his survival of it and then subsequent conquering of his fears makes more sense it's less light switch than it was in the theatrical release yeah well it's, again i'm not saying that 
Yeah. I'm not saying that they do the job well. It just does the job much better than the yeah, original film. It absolutely does. I think, I suppose, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm more trying to think it. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm backstopping my own bias by sitting here and going, is there something I'm missing? And I'm seeing that, yes, there is a little bit of an arc for Flash, but I'm struggling to see them with any one of them. And with the Flash, I missed it. And the reason I missed it with the Flash is because it's so mu- it's so muddied and in the middle of 18 other things that everybody's trying to do and it's not you know they don't set up character arcs and slowly pay them off they and 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 maybe arguably you can't in an ensemble movie like that but there's there they still they do though in other big ensemble movies like the they do the example i can think of is like thor and asgard the new asgard it's like like fat thor as much as people hate fat thor it's like they're they're trying to do something there and you care about it whether you disagree with it and hate it or you agree with it and like it you know see i loved it i i think the problem that you've got with it is you and i fall into a minority of of viewers of people that enjoy this stuff and aren't just watching it to review even though we do watch it to review um who value character development more than plot and i realized that the majority value the story more than the characters um when i realized what um tom hanks's most popular highest grossing movie role of all time was what's that the da vinci code (laughs) Yeah, well, Dan Brown. <laughs> I think no, but like his character doesn't need to exist in that movie, and he's the main character. It's been so long right? ago that I've book forgotten that it. Movie... But but I do I I see what you're saying. You're saying that the bulk majority of people out there want a good plot. But even so, like the plot means nothing with characters. That's why the Marvel movies are so much more successful. Um, like if you look at. If you look at Justice League, it fails utterly as a plot. I mean, in, other than, like, unless you really, really like seeing CG creatures getting punched by other people, um, like, there's almost nothing there to sink your teeth into. No, but there's stuff that... I, and I don't disagree with you, but I get why people like it, is my point. Yeah. Like, the fleshing out of the backstory and the first conflict between the heroes of Earth and... Um, and uh dark side like it doesn't make any sense especially when you stop and think about the fact that you know in this universe there are lanterns if there are lanterns they would notice dark side's fleet mobilizing and coming back to this planet that presumably has a lantern assigned to it for production at this point in the form of Adam sewer where the heck is he <laughs> um no but like it doesn't make any sense in a broader stop for five seconds and think about it, but it's so freaking cool watching Hercules punch or Zeus was it Zeus or Hercules? Uh, I think Zeus, it was Zeus. punch Darkseid in the face with a lightning bolt. Well, I think it's, right? like, it's that it's it's two elements. So you've got the you've got the element of people really really have both the Green Goblin mentality. And the need to see something they haven't seen before. So, I, so I'll, I'll, exp- I'll, I'll elaborate on that a little bit. There's the Green Goblin thing. You live long enough to become the villain thing, which is also the Harvey Dent thing. Like if it, it, yeah. you know, like like if you fly around enough, you're gonna become the bad guy. And they want to see all the DC heroes become that because so that they're so pure and unstained in a lot of ways. That is the the worldwide context for the Boy Scout 
um, that is Superman and all of his super friends, right? There's that. And they also want to see things they haven't seen before. And we've never seen Superman snap a neck. And we've never seen Wonder Woman turn a man's head into a blood spot. And we've never seen an Aquaman who goes, yeah, and drinks like a, like a, like a lush, right? And we've never seen a flash <laughs> yeah. that's, that's funny and cool, you know? And, and I think that, that a lot gets forgiven because it's something we haven't seen before and it's something that's new and new is very hard and new is very difficult but also new is new is very easy to crumble under any kind of scrutiny and it's one of those things that i think in 10 years we're going to look back and be like oh wow oh oh wait mm, we're already kind of doing that for for Superman Returns, just fifteen years on, we're like, wow, that was, ooh, wow, people were willing to die on that hill, you know. It's just a movie, right? But it's also something that in fifteen years, not you're not going to make make it like must see TV to watch, like you would say The Godfather. Let let me put it let me put it to you this way: you're right, you're a hundred percent right. This is not a thing that I'm probably going to revisit more than once if my son asks me to, because he's at the age where this is kind of exciting and awesome for him. Um. But if some form of this movie, maybe not four hours with 45 minutes of slow-mo, but say a three-hour and 15-minute, so like Avengers Endgame-length movie, had hit theaters in 2017, I don't believe we'd be seeing Restore the Snyderverse hashtags out. I think that would have created enough momentum that he would still be helming these movies with Jeff Johns. Yeah, I think so. I also think that the Restore the Snyder Cut thing has ab very little to do with the actual movie or the universe. I think it's it's a group of people that found a club that they want to be in, and they want to make everyone else think the exact same thing they do, and they're going to bully until they get their way, and they're going to continue to be mad for the rest of their lives because they're not getting their way in the exact way they want to. This is a common thread in Superman fan bases and has been since I started working for the they're homepage. There's there's that part to it for sure, but I don't begrudge people with the exception of Superman because, frankly, they're just wrong in preferring these takes on the characters. Affleck's Batman, plot, stupidity, and inconsistencies aside, is, and I'm dying inside as I say this, a better version of Batman than the Dark Knight trilogy version of Batman, even though those movies are far, 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 far superior. He's Frank Miller's Batman. He looks like Batman, I suppose. Um, I don't. He doesn't you know, just look like Batman. I, I think the Dark Knight movies aren't like aging well, um, but they, 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 they're not. He, he uh, when he's when the mask is off, I don't see Bruce Wayne. I see Ben Affleck. I see Ben Affleck only because Batman v Superman squandered what he could have done with Bruce Wayne by turning him into this caricature of that and completely screwing with his motivations and behavior from seven decades of comic books. Well, the other thing, too, is like um, other than having a gun and being slightly more militant. I don't see, I, I, I struggle to think of a scene other than maybe when he uses the Bat Claw where Batman does anything that is traditionally Batman. I mean, his fights are, are just basically like Krav Maga, take them down and murder them fast kind of punch outs. He doesn't use his gadgets really. He, he doesn't hide in no, the shadows. The he doesn't. Uh, 
Oh, no, 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 I'm going to call you out on that because that was the one thing Batman v Superman did well. It completely squandered Superman, but it got Batman being back. Like, there's that scene where the women are being trafficked and they're in the cages yeah. and the cops come mm -hmm. down. And he's literally, like, obscured sure. in the shadow and causing terror. Like, he yeah. freaks them and, out. Yeah, and I know why they did it's, that. It, they did that so that they could say, look, he's so in the shadows all the time. And then after that, he's just walking around in public. That's It's so that you can true. make that it, argument. <laughs> I, I, I suppose that level of cynicism could be there. My, my, my point is, is that these versions of the characters being somebody's favorite version of the characters, to me, again, aside from Superman and maybe Cyborg, is not egregious. I love sure. Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman. Yeah, people can right? like these I, all they want. That's that, I have no issue I, with that. I, I don't particularly enjoy Ezra Miller's portrayal of the Flash, but I like what they've done structurally with that character and his design and the way he moves and interacts. And it's like I can see people glomming onto that and going, yeah, this is this, this is something that I like. So I don't think that the Restore the Snyder verse and the Restore the Snyder cut thing came from a place of pure cynicism and bullying, although that was certainly a huge part of the movement, unfortunately. But I think there's some genuine affection for these characters. I just think the movies are bad. But if we'd gotten this version of this movie or something that looked like it, we wouldn't need to be talking about Restore the Snyderverse. It would just still be going, is my point. Yes. Because it is qualitatively despite not being a very good movie, a much better movie than the uh, 2017 theatrical release, except for the biggest sin it commits, worse than nonsensical plot, worse than slow motion, uh, worse than, you know, Superman choosing to wear the black suit for no discernible reason whatsoever, they cut out my favorite scene from the theatrical cut because it was a Joss Whedon edition, which is Aquaman talking about his feelings while he's sitting on the lasso of truth. Ah, uh, see, I thought you were going to go with the Superman Flash race, which I've noticed not many people commenting on it, but I don't know. I, it, it's... Yeah. Well, go ahead. No, no, I like I liked that, but the the absence of that one moment of levity where they're all sitting around the, the I guess, the Batwing carrier... Mm -hmm. um, and Momoa is sitting on the lasso of truth and starts talking about how he's afraid and, you know like <laughs> he misses his mommy and like and he realizes he's sitting on the lasso like that was the one bright spot in the theatrical release that was just an absolute joy and they cut it from of this. course and that that yeah it was earnest <laughs> yeah the, yeah there's there's a thing going back a little bit rewinding a little bit um, to, so, so you mentioned that, that it's, the universe would still be going if it was good. That's fine. But also the element of people like this and are entitled to like this, which is absolutely true. Um, I think there's, there's a, there's an elephant in the room that needs to be addressed. And that is the taint of the restore the Snyder cut brand. Uh, if you will, it's the, the bad brand, I guess. So here's, here's the thing. There are things politically that I agree with, and I'm going to keep this apolitical in, in that regard, but there are things that I absolutely agree with politically that are sullen and tainted by the people who, 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 um, who have become their greatest champions, right? And this is a situation like, say you're, 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 um, 
a young man who is very pleased with this rendition of Wonder Woman uh, for the purest of reasons, right? And right. so you want to see this Wonder Woman as interpreted by Zack Snyder in another movie that Zack Snyder's directed. And I'm not saying Superman because I know everybody's latching on to Superman, but I'm using Wonder Woman as, an, as, as a neutral side example. Then if you were to post restore the Snyder cut or for Anne or whatever the name of his daughter was, the way that they're doing it online in that bullying kind of brigading way that is causing people to have to shut down sites or getting people doxxed or getting people's lives threatened. You are literally, whether you intend to or not, associating yourselves with a group of people who are divisive and toxic and arguably immoral in a lot of ways. Um, yes. And I think that that makes it so that whether the movie or whether is good or whether the movie is bad, there is a pall hanging over it that is irrespective of any of the merits of the story. And it is inarguable that Zack Snyder has sided with and fostered this community to the point of where outside of the quality of the film, he is to be condemned or at very least chastised publicly. No, and that's that's fair, I suppose. I just, I, you and I had a debate about this, or maybe it was me and Steve back in the day when they were making the um, Ender's Game movie, um, and there was all of this swirling around uh, whether or not the movie should exist, given Orson Scott cards not just views, but his financial support of anti-LGBT causes. Um, and the debate that we had was whether you can separate a work of art from the artist entirely or not, whether it can stand alone and be appreciated regardless of your feelings of its creator. And I came very strongly from the camp of, yeah, the, the book is wonderful. It's brilliant. It was created by a bad person, but I'm not going to not have my kids read it. Yeah. The movie is the movie is out. It's out whether I go and see it or not. Thousands of people worked on it. Their livelihoods moving forward depend on its financial success because that's how it works in that world. If you're on a project that doesn't make any money, you're linked to that project on your resume forever and people are less likely to hire you. And so, yeah, I'm going to go pay my $20 for the movie ticket and $4,000 for a bucket of popcorn. And I'm going to go and see this thing because I don't care that Orson Scott card is a scum bucket. I don't care that uh, J.K. Rowling is unpopular. <laughs> I still like those stories and they exist. So I'm going to enjoy them because I can separate the artist from their work. Sure. And I think in this particular case, if we're going to look at this work and how it's been received and how we received it. Yeah. Who Zack Snyder is as a person and how he succumbed to bullies and kind of championed that side of it. And, and for that matter, the actors in the movie were all waving the flag of, yes, this is far superior. Let's get this on screen. And you know what? Should they have stepped out and told the bullying elements of that movement, hey, knock it off, that's not reflective of us. Absolutely, it's a shame that they didn't. I wish they had. But this is a better movie and a better reflection of the work that they did. And so, like, I kind of 
I kind of understand their instinct to pan the theatrical cut and jump on board the Restore the Snyder Cut movement because who wants to be associated with something that wasn't the best view of what they actually did? And if I'm going to extend that grace to them, I kind of have to extend it to Snyder. I would say that you, I, I'm all for that if they draw a line. <clears throat> I think that they are right. right. I think that that's the difference. I think if they just want to stand up for this work of art that they created, it can exist independently. I suppose that's my um, that's my frustration. They are not making any effort to make it exist independently of that. They are in fact latch uh, hitching their horses to that wagon and riding it, um, irrespective of the damage it's causing. Yeah, no, and that's that's why I say I wish they had pushed back against the toxic elements of the fandom while still saying, yeah, we want to see this. It's better. It should exist. But they didn't. Everybody around this made bad decisions in getting it made and supported bad elements of the movement in getting it made. And it makes the whole thing kind of icky. But what we've got is a better movie. Like we have an objectively, I think, better movie than what we got originally. And I'm grateful that it exists, even if I hate the mechanism in which it came to be. I'm, I'm glad that people got work because I know how hard it is to get work as an artist. And I hope they continue to get work, um, even if I disagree with them politically on any, on any front. But I honestly, I'm still back at the one of one of five thing. Like, like both Whedon and this movie are such catastrophic failures. It's like it's like arguing how many angels dance on the head of a pin in terms of like whether sure. one is better than the other for me. I, I would give this like a two or a two and a half out of five. I would I would be inclined to give it almost a two and a half, like a full two and a half, if it wasn't for the slow-mo and the fact that a lot of the elements that they added to the movie to flush out the plot actually do more damage to the consistency of the story, right? Yeah. So like Mar the Martian Manhunter stuff, cool. That's cool. Why wasn't he in the fight? Why is this just a latter-day addition to the plot well, that could have been woven in earlier? And, you know, why wasn't he in the fight? Like, well, there's, there's, I, my, I just, there's my fundamental break with the... With the, with the with the assessment here, I suppose. Like, cause, so, so you say Martian Manhunter was there and it was cool, right? And, and I totally get where you're coming from. Like, I understand that, that it was enjoyable to see the Martian Manhunter on screen. That's not what I'm questioning. I just don't... I, I Like, I never really saw the Martian Manhunter on screen. I saw a shoehorned image, I guess. Like, oh, no, no, no. I didn't say it was cool. Oh, okay. I, I used cool in the, like, I have made a statement cool period oh okay gotcha. but, so so like like yeah. that's the thing because I, I thought about the martian manhunter a lot and it's a prime example of the one of the biggest sins that this movie has which is just like they say the name of a thing and that thing appears but it is in no way what that thing is like a mother box or a dark side or a desod and it has some elements of what those things were once and you can even be like well this is a different media right but even generally in a broad spectrum like Dark side is not a cloud of crows, Smallville, no matter how much you want it to be, you know? And and yeah. Martian Manhunter, it, 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 you know, like, okay, so there are some times where he's appeared in Clark's past and helps help manipulate Clark's history a little bit. And there, you know, he definitely imitates other people. 
Um, <laughs> and he would probably <laughs> want to comfort Lois. But appearing nonsensically out of context in one weird, one weird scene in the middle of nowhere and then just flying off and no longer participating is so utterly incoherent that you can be like, yeah, it, it would be like if all of a sudden they were in the middle of the fight with Darkseid and, and, and Zoom appears running backwards like, <laughs> I'm going to remember this later, <laughs> and then Poofy disappears. It's like, yeah, that's technically yeah. Zoom doing Zoomy things, right? But what's the point? Well, the point, Neil, is they needed to pass the Bechdel test somehow in this movie, and so they tried and still failed on eight different Well, levels. yeah, because they're still talking about, the, like, the whole subject of any woman's conversation in this movie is, is a man, unless it's Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah, and Martian Manhunter is not actually a woman. That's a good um, point. Unless he identifies that way, in which case I Oh my god, there everyone. is a whole angle. Um, you just give me a plenty of great ideas for Martian Manhunter stories right there. <laughs> but anyway, back to the point. <laughs> Um, yeah, Doctor Who's already done that uh, and better. Yes. Um, but uh, but no, like there's these these elements that get added, and they're you can tell that they're added as an attempt to make things feel bigger and more dramatic, and at the same time, as though all of these things make sense. And the, on initial viewing, my gut reaction to each one of those things is that of my inner 12-year-olds, which is, this is awesome. If you'd have told me when I was 12 years old that I would ever see this. It's, it's like the same reaction I had in Endgame and spoilers for a now, what, four or five-year-old movie, sorry, um, that we'd get to see Captain America holding Mjolnir and wielding it against Thanos. I would have punched you in the face and called you a liar if you told me that I'd see that one day on a, in a big screen yeah, movie. But, but uh, that was you see that was, the difference is like it's the perpetual twelve-year-old. It's the yeah right. It's the perpetual twelve-year-old's fan fiction. That's what this movie is. It's a perpetual twelve-year-old's fan fiction from nineteen eighty-five. Right. And 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 it's yeah, like it's like whoa, this would be cool. Oh, and this is like the Lord of the Rings. Oh, and look, this is like that movie I loved, Infinity War. And look over here, this is like that cartoon I watched in 1983. And 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 oh, look, these ladies all love him. He's a hero. You know, it's it's very immature, and it's very yeah. laudatory for the immaturity. And it's not that but those my, things can't be great. It's that they're just not here. But my, my first reaction to all of those things was, that's cool, and I would grin and I would smile. And for me, if I'm judging this as a piece of entertainment, because I'm never going to judge... Like, judging a Zack Snyder movie through the lens of, is it art, is like... <laughs> ask is like asking that question of the disney cartoon the gummy bears like it's 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 no but it's not a question that makes any sense the only question that matters was was it enjoyable and why and was it not enjoyable and why this snyder's work is never ever 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 going to be anything other than pop art and i'm fine with that stephen king who is absolutely 100% my favorite writer is also not the best writer I've ever read by anywhere near that metric, right? He's pop art, but I enjoy him. And more importantly, he knows he's pop art and doesn't mind that. I think Stephen King has a lot more depth and a lot er more of a earned universe in almost every respect. And I tend to make the argument, and people will crucify me for this, 
but I make the argument that uh, Stephen King is literature in disguise. And I, I have no shame in saying it. I think that Stephen King is a spoonful of sugar for literature. And it makes all the people who like capital O literature really angry because they're like, no, this isn't literature. And, and, and it makes people who like pop fiction just for being pop fiction insulted because they're like, no, it doesn't have to be deep. But Stephen King is no, a very that, complicated, complicated example. Like, like it, it'd be like if Zack Snyder made a movie called Tommy Knockers about green aliens who run around, I don't know, kidnapping children, <laughs> you know? Why, why would you go to the middle of King's cocaine phase? You know, I, for, be, I'll for, tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because I just <laughs> read Tommy Knockers because uh, I had I filled out, I, like I had finished reading every Stephen King book. And everyone was like, Tommy Knockers is the worst novel of all Stephen King's canon. And it's frankly not. It's it's no. a perfectly entertaining, no. serviceable novel. It's not his best, but it is not his worst. <laughs> Ger Gerald's Game is my least enjoyable read, even if it's technically fine. I, you know, I honest, honestly, my worst Stephen King re reads are a lot of pe everybody's favorites. Like his early stuff where he tried way, way, way too hard to be literature to me. Like when he didn't just yeah. no, lean into what he was. Like a, mo a book like Christine... Um, I really enjoyed Christine, but it was way, way, way too long trying to be a statement about teenage angst, right? And that, and that, that actually is a perfect kind of comparison to this movie. It is enjoyable and fun, but it's way, 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 way too long, and it's trying to make statements, and it's not content to be what it is, which is a superhero mash-em-up movie. And it every time it tries to be something more is where it stumbles. So, so I'm gonna have you come on me, okay? I'm gonna have you East Coast come on me. All right, this is this is, this is <laughs> okay. it's a bit I've just come up with here on the fly. So I struggle to come up with a single thing in this movie that I found entertaining. So I want you to be like, oh, come, come on, on Neil, come on. What about and give me a what about that 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 like I, I will give I will give you a what okay. about that sequence with the Flash in the dog grooming studio where we get to see his powers outside of the context of any kind of super fight is gloriously entertaining. The um Justice League versus Superman fight, despite the fact that it highlights one of my biggest flaws in this movie, which is they have turned this version of Superman in the 11th hour into a pre-John Byrne way overpowered version of Superman uh, for no discernible reason, um, is wildly entertaining. It is freaking cool. The pretextual stuff where you see Darkseid's first attack on Earth and how the heroes of men fight him off. I would watch two hours of that story. Like, that was DC Comics does Lord of the Rings. That was cool. All three of those... There is... Failed for me for, for... Maybe it's stupid reasons, but, like, the Flash thing, there was an element where I couldn't find out where they were in my head in space. Like, I was sitting there during this whole slow-motion scene being like, but the truck is coming from this way. And I still think there was a continuity flaw there, but I just didn't care enough to track it down. And also, like... It, it, it's it's that bit from Dewey Cox. It's like, you know, Darlene, you're going to be my wife because I pointed to you in the audience and you smiled. Th there was that element of, like, what's going on with Iris West here for that scene, okay? And then the fight with Superman and the rest of the league, I was struck for the whole thing, like, this is nothing that Superman would ever do even if he were mentally altered, number one, right? But e even just looking at it as a cool fight... 
It's not very A to B to C, nor is it blocked very well. There is one cool moment. The moment when Flash is going super, super fast, and Superman turns, and Flash realizes, oh, he's as fast as me. That's neat. Completely out of context. But the dark side thing, from the beginning, um, just highlights... For, like, I'm sitting there for that whole scene, like, even when he's throwing a light bolt at Zeus, lightning bolt at Zeus, like, the cool factor is my brain is still back buffering, going, but wait a minute... If he's already been to Earth, none of this makes sense. And if the boxes are already here, this is all crap. You're you're trying to sell me a bill of goods. And my outrage for that, my like, like, this just violates the fundamental nature of the trust between the story and the storyteller. Just makes it so I can't focus on any of that stuff. Okay, and that's because you are making a fundamental error in your assessment of what it is that you watched. <laughs> uh, you think you want no but you are you think you watched a movie and this is actually a flaw like probably the biggest flaw i have with this thing existing um it took until my second rewatch and digest of it before i realized what was bugging me about the whole thing and once i realized it i was able to enjoy those moments in time as pieces of entertainment this is not a movie. It is a motion comic. <laughs> Fair enough. No, but it is. It is the 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 shooting of it, the overindulgence in slow motion, the the framing of of characters physically, like geographically, where they are in each scene of this thing. This is not an A to B to C movie. This is a 10,000 image Alex Ross mural that you paint on your wall. And you go, oh, that bit's cool. Oh, that bit's cool. Oh, that bit's cool. I don't know why he drew that. You know what it is? I just figured it out. I've solved the Snyder Cut. Here we go, Julian. So there are people I know who read comics who are comic book artists, and they are brilliant. They don't give a crap about the story at all. They pick up the comic because they want to see uh, they want to see Alex Ross's work on a page. And Alex Ross is probably a, a, a bad example because people who are artists, artists tend to go for more obscure names. But the problem is I tend not to look at the artist as much as I tend to look at the writer. And this is Jim this Lee. Is, we'll use we'll use Jim Lee. Jim, uh, Cause, cause, uh, no, but he's uh, he's got that super sure. iconic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, super iconic for for certain folks. Yes, um, yeah. I am. I uh, I don't want to talk smack about Jim Lee because I I completely understand. It's so there are artists that I understand why everybody likes them, and Jim Lee is one of them. That's that. Uh, there we go. Uh, <laughs> there's diplo <laughs> diplomacy. Um, yeah, but Snyder is a movie for, for, for people, I'm sure, who are... But see, that's the thing. That's the thing. I can't even <laughs> I can't even give it a pass on if you just like the visuals because he made it TV box, you know? And there's nothing extraordinarily compelling about the framing of almost any shot that I can see. Um, there are, no, there but are every shot, every shot, including the two minutes of rain falling while Lois Lane gets a coffee and the scene of Momoa taking his shirt off as the waves crash over him in slow-mo on the bridge while the cast of Frozen sings a hymn to him. Um, 
every single shot in this movie, if it was a still drawn by Alex Ross, you would go, yeah, I'd put that on my wall. <laughs> and no, but to me, that's what Snyder is doing. He does not look at comic books as valid storytelling, which is why he was kind of perfect to do Watchmen as a movie. He views comic books as art. I wasn't laughing at that. Uh, at that I was laughing at because the the thing popped that popped into my head immediately is that it's not a motion comic. It's a motion Instagram. And that makes absolute sense because what's Snyder always doing? He's going on the Instagram and showing you the one perfect shot in a way to try and, you know, manipulate his fan base into being fanatical about something in an almost political way. And that's what it is. It's a motion Instagram. That shot with Aquaman and the flowing locks and the big wave is like, like, like hashtag Aqualife, you know, like that's exactly yeah, what like that is. No, but if you view this through the lens of what this actually is, what Zack Snyder has to say about comic movies actually is, is it is the coolest, nerdiest version of being forced to sit through an old man's slideshow for four <laughs> hours that you've ever gotten to experience, you get these movies. I, I It's kind of, yeah, or like like what would happen if the jock that was always beating the crap out of you up and uh, beating the crap out of you in school decided to make a Superman movie and was suddenly given all the power in the world, I guess. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like look to, at how cool Aquaman is because he's, uh, you know, he's, he's got, he takes his shirt off in every scene. Yeah, dude, I'm ready to fight, you know? Yeah, and to be fair, once I realized that, I was able to allow myself to enjoy the stuff that I found entertaining and discard the stuff that I didn't and go, well, that's a little bit too Mark Rothko for me. I'm not really into red rectangles this week. Yeah. Um, I suppose I'm too raw. And just go... Pardon? I suppose I'm just too raw being close to the real world consequences of that kind of mentality, I guess. It's like I, I spent many, many years just watching like the the wheel phone it in and be dude bros world and its negative impact on me and the people that I love, I guess. And that gets get, that was right, getting I, but, really but, serious but, real quick, you know, and it's not all that serious, but, but. no, and none of this move. There's there's not a shot in this movie that feels phoned in. Like, there is effort all over this flick. True. And in a way that the theatrical release didn't have, because Joss Whedon was trying to turn this motion comic into a movie. Yes. He tried to... He, that is that is a very, very good way of describing what happened. It's like they took, they took ins an Instagram fan-fishing motion comic and tried to apply traditional Hollywood three-act structure after 90% of the thing had been finished, and they had to trim... You know, forty five percent of that ninety percent. Yes, that is a good exam. That 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 is a good visualization of exactly what seems to have happened here. Right, and so I can sit back and I can enjoy it as long as I remind myself that it is not meant to be what the MCU movies are, which is cohesive stories and movies that are telling stories about 
characters that I know in a variety of genres, right? Like Captain America Winter Soldier is a James Bond movie. <laughs> uh, Black Panther is fundamentally a James Bond movie. Um, Ant-Man is basically a poke up at My Secret Identity and uh, Greatest American Hero. Um, but they're, they're, they're these... They, they have stories that make sense because they're trying to tell a narrative story. And if I look back at everything Zack Snyder has ever done with the exception of Dawn of the Dead and culminated most obviously in 300 and uh, Sucker Punch, Zack Snyder isn't interested in telling stories. Zack Snyder is interested in being, uh, oh, who's that artist that does like the, the like, uh, Banksy. <laughs> Zack Snyder is Banksy. I, 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 I'm probably being too postmodern in my resentment because what I'm looking at is like it's the same movie as Batman and Robin. You know, it, it fundamentally just the the difference of the context of time changes it. Like when Batman and Robin came out, it was a giant turd, and I loved it because I was sixteen or seventeen and I didn't care. And then later I realized, oh man, what a pile of crap! And I just enjoyed it for what it was, and I had fun, even though I should have been older to understand, uh, old enough, especially with all the books I'd read at that point, to understand the flaws inherent in the structure going forward. But it was what it was. It wasn't everybody's bag. It disappeared. It has a cult following 25 years later. So here's the difference, though. Um, when Batman and Robin came out, there was a set number of movies. And, you know, you either liked them or you didn't. And it, 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 you didn't have to take a political stance over whether or not you like Batman and Robin. And now we have a situation where there are more artists, you know, like there was that whole thing. I think it was Nick Hornby or something. Not Nick Hornby. Um, oh, bloody hell the guy who who, who wrote um high fidelity and he did an album with ben folds and he talked yeah that's that's nick, Hor is that's, Ho that's Hornby? nick Hornby. all right so, so for some reason yeah. I, I screw up that name sometimes but anyway he he did this bit about how you know in, in one of the songs about how you could you could only read the titles of all all the books that were were being published every year if you took 30 years to do it and things like that and so there's so many things right now uh, and the number of things keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger because the internet has re removed the ability for um, there to be a, a great filter. Yet nonetheless, there is a great filter, and it is a corporate great filter. And those few things that make it past the corporate great filter are the things that define a generation's superheroes. Um, Batman and Robin making it out there did nothing to change Batman and Robin fundamentally. It's not like we suddenly had an era of schlock that lasted forever. But I do think that after this movie, whether you just take it as an entertaining nothing or not, or whether you take it as a serious literature, you know, it's the Instagram hero take seems to have fundamentally altered the landscape. And while I don't think that they are going to... Um, continue making the Snyderverse. I I think that going forward, this they're still they're still not building a universe. They're still flailing. They're still trying to see what sticks to the wall. It seems like a WB DC Comics vein that's been going on for quite a long time, um, and it doesn't seem to be shifting. And and you know like, eh, I'm out of the demo. I'm not the target audience. That's fine. But if I'm gonna look at it and analyze it. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm. It's very hard for me to just go. Eh, it was a piece of entertainment I didn't enjoy because there's so much more attached to it now than there was to Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin was a piece of entertainment I didn't enjoy. Uh, the Snyder cut 
is going to, like, and my position on it, has ended friendships, even when I haven't right. been a zealot about it. There are people who got violently angry and bitter and trolling with me to the point of where they, they hunted me down privately over whether or not I thought this was a sufficient piece of entertainment. So there's there's so much balled up in here that it's 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 hard for me to just go, oh, you know, it, it tried very hard and it failed and it was a thing I didn't like because, you know, like like it's like with Superman Returns. There were people who who found the personal address of people that I knew and used personal information to go after people and threaten their lives over an opinion on a movie. And that was Superman Returns, which was which had an 18th of the vitriol that the Zack Snyder yeah. fans have. I don't know. I don't think I ever threatened you over your review. No, that. well, that's I, I, you. Yeah. You, are, you are the most, and, and this is the thing. You are the most circumspect and kind person when it comes to criticism that I know in a lot of respects. And I also think that that um, that you, it, it's it's a nationality perspective thing too, to a degree. Like like in America, we're all knives out for everything, and in Canada, you can actually be chill about an opinion, and no one's really going to cut your throat for it. Um, you, you know, it's, it's not even that what it is with me and these properties and the reason why I will twist myself into knots trying to find ways to justify even stuff like, uh, Green Goblin in, uh, the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie basically being a Power Rangers villain, <laughs> um, is I grew up, I'm 42 years old. When I was a kid, being a nerd was the worst thing you could possibly be. And I am so slobberingly grateful that we now have a glut of this stuff and that my kid gets to uh, live in that fandom. And it's what everybody likes, not just the outcasts. Yes. That I come at each one of these projects with a sense of affection and gratitude for it even being there. And the reason that I'm inclined to be more forgiving to this movie than I think you are is this movie in particular is a thing that is important, not because of the story that it tells, but simply for existing it is a very strange time capsule of what this period of time and art um, is that I think we're going to be discussing for the next 20 years because it's not just a mindless piece of entertainment. All of its context and everything that it does that is different, whether we like it or not, makes it important. It is a Mark Rothko <laughs> painting, whether you like Mark, Mark Rothko or not. I kind of just had a realization that could be hilarious. I don't know. I don't think it's going to go this way. But people were on me for years about the way that in Smallville and in um, and in the Snyder universe, how vitally important it is that Superman kills somebody so that he knows that it's not okay to kill um and, yeah. and I, i'm realizing this could be a situation where you know where i'm absolutely for the snyderverse in 20 years because it's the way everybody learned that superman doesn't have to kill 
You know, it's like maybe we needed the Snyderverse movies so that everybody understands that that's not what you do to Superman. Of course, that's not the way I think it's going to go, but that would be hilarious as an irony. You know, you know what this is? I have and I'll I'll take a picture of it and so that I have the title on hand for when we do uh, chapter two, the age of not quite heroes. We're not sure what we are, Um, but I have this coffee table book. That is, um, it's all art by Alex Ross set to four stories about Superman, uh, Wonder Woman, Batman, and I think Flash. Um, it's this giant oversized coffee table book. The art is amazing. I've never read the stories because I don't care. I just have the book (laughs) out because the art is amazing. And to me that's the lens that I am choosing to view the Snyder Cut through. I'm not looking at it as how does it stack up as a movie when compared to Infinity War and Endgame, because I don't think Snyder was aiming to make a movie. I think Snyder was aiming to make a giant coffee table book. Well, and to be fair, I'm pulling it wide, wide far afield, and, and, and we do have parts. We should bring it back to the first part, I suppose. What uh No no, we said we said we said that for the first part we were going to do sort of an overview sure. of where we felt about the movie. Well, this is just And then we do the That's my witty bad segue into trying to ask another question, I suppose, which is does Batman have any reason to bring these heroes together? No, and that's and that's kind of where I want to start chapter 2. Okay. Um which yeah we'll we'll put a pin in this for right now and then we'll we'll come back for chapter 2 um but the answer is no <laughs> but his motivation in the Snyder cut is much better than his motivation in um the theatrical cut yes it seems he went from um from Dick Cheney to the original George Bush. <laughs> He's like, you know, like, we have to find a reason to invade, and then all of a sudden, if we're gonna invade, we better have a coalition of the willing. Um, the, the reasoning behind the reasoning behind why the Justice League exists in this movie versus the theatrical cut exi- is allowed it to be his motivation because we have more time. Yeah. It's very small film. Right? It's like this is our destiny, so we better make it our destiny. <laughs> No, but it's a monument to Superman, right? Like, this is a movie that fetishizes a character who's not on screen for most of it. Yeah, and that's, I suppose that's, well, we'll get into it, I'm sure, but that's the biggest, the biggest actual flaw with Batman's motivation is he goes from, like, like on a dime from this is the, this is literal Hitler and he must be killed to, hey, maybe Hitler ain't so bad a guy and maybe he's, in fact, the leader of all of us, you know? Um, right, 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 right. It, yeah, which some would call character growth. <laughs> Most people would be. <laughs> well, you know, it could be done. It could absolutely be done. There's a hell of a comic book story in 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 Batman being like his idealism is his weakness. Oh wait, but his idealism is his strength in becoming a new, better Batman. But you know, Batman's so fundamentally <laughs> yeah. broken. But anyway, uh, you're right. We All should right, put a so pin folks, in it. That's that's chapter one. Yes, uh, we will be back for chapter two. Uh, the age of we're not heroes, but we will figure out what we want to be when we grow up. All right. We'll catch you next time, folks. Ciao. Well, hey there, all you super cat coes and kittens. I'm not going to ask you to like or subscribe or add us on Facebook or Twitter because frankly, I just don't care. 
Julian might, but you'd have to ask him. I am, however, an independent writer of novels, comics, and reviews. I don't get paid for that, and I've been doing it steadily for 21 years. If you like what I do, and if you can, your support would mean a world of difference in my life. I have a website where you can find my books, neilbailey.com with an A in the Neil, N-E-A-L, not an I, and I have a Patreon where you can get exclusive early access to everything I do along with free copies of all my books and comics along with every new book and comic I make as they come out for the price of a coffee. Get yourself on over to www.patreon.com slash neilbailey and tell them Neil sent you. Thanks for listening.